Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. We thank you for your son and for your love and for your grace. And for the promises that come with that. Promise of eternal life. And not just a life forever that goes on forever. Not just because we won't die. Not just because there won't be any more sin. Not just because there'll be no more pain and no more sadness. No more tears. No more suffering. No more sin. But because there will be you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. You are our prize. You are the gospel. God, you are the glory that we desire to see. Your holiness you perfect in us through this life so that we can taste day by day, more and more, what it's like to be with you. So make your presence felt and known and clear. Open our eyes to the truth. Remove the veil of sin that prevents us from understanding your word and prevents us from seeing your truth and prevents us from being satisfied in you and prevents us from obeying your word. We trust your spirit to do magnificent work through the power of your word because you promise it. And so we trust it and we know that when we trust you and we obey, you will act. So we're obeying you. We are opening your word. We are declaring your truth. And we are trusting that you will be the source of life in your word. And now we depend on your work. So transform our hearts and our minds. Sanctify us this morning. Don't let this be truth that gets in our heads for a moment and then leaves when we leave, but let it ingrain and download deeply into our souls as transformative power to turn us into your son. I am just a man, Lord. We are just people. And the sooner we understand the grandeur of your supremacy and your transcendent greatness and our fallible, finite, made from dirt, skin and bones, will we understand how important you are to our lives. That you have taken this soul within us that is wrapped in flesh and bone and dirt and you have given it life. We want to live that life, God. And we need you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are chapter six of 1 Timothy Nearing the end, I think we maybe have four or five or so sermons left in Timothy. And then starting at the new year, we'll probably be in a new book of the Bible. I'm not sure what that is yet. Be praying about it. Every time I think about it, 
I feel like in my mind, I'll give you a visual of what I see. It feels like God puts this really big banner with lights around it and arrows pointing to it. And he's saying, Romans. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but that's a really, really hard book. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Romans. And uh, it is a very, very heavy book, doctrinally and theologically rich. Um, and it's long, and it would probably take us three and a half years. Based on the speed at which we move the rest of the books, I'm guessing at least three years to get through Romans. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of attitude I'm looking for. <laughs> Uh, so be praying about that. Um, it, in, in one sense, it doesn't really matter what book we do because it's God's word, right? And, and, and he'll, he'll lead me and us to the right place. Uh, but be praying about that, please, because I need your prayers. I don't want to be making decisions all by myself. I'd love if you guys would pray for my thoughts about those things. So, but today we are in First uh, Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. And we're going to talk about doctrine, and we're going to get a different take, different perspective on doctrine today, and the value of doctrine in relationships, which I think is the applicable point here. The concept of, of sound doctrine is itself a doctrine. So the idea of doctrine is a doctrine. Doctrine is a doctrine because the Bible teaches us the importance of doctrine, and anything the Bible teaches us relates to a biblical doctrine. So... We use the word doctrine all the time, and I'm going to use it a lot today, and I was thinking, you know what, I think we all understand what the term doctrine means, because we can contextualize it as you listen to me preach, but I wanted to give you a definition. A definition of doctrine is a principle, or a position, or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or system of belief. Another word for this would be like dogma, like a, a, a concept that you adhere to. A truth or a set of truths that create what you believe about whatever system you're in. In our case, the system is truth. The system is God's word. The system is what we call Christianity. The system is God's word. So doctrine must be right in the church. And we're not going to get into the nuances of the differences between doctrines that divide and doctrines that shouldn't divide. There are doctrines in the Bible that are so important that we should separate ourselves from people who believe a different doctrine. And then there are doctrines in the Bible that we might disagree with someone on that we should not separate from. So let me give you an example. If somebody believes that Jesus is not God, that's a pretty, pretty clear indication that there should be a separation in our positions we are not on the same page. There is not unity between us and the people who believe that Jesus is not God. That's their doctrine. Now, there are other doctrines that shouldn't be cause for division. You know, um, some people believe in uh, dispensationalism and some people are like, no, I don't, I don't believe in dispensationalism or how God operated with Israel throughout time in this way. And some people believe God operated with, through Israel in a different way and whatever. And those are just the nuances of doctrine. And we don't divide on those issues because we believe the same gospel. So I'm not going to dig into those kinds of nuances of doctrine. 
Because Paul is going to take one particular avenue to address doctrine, and it's going to be a negative avenue. So Paul's about to warn Timothy where false doctrine comes from and why it comes from those who push it in the church. And in this, we can see the value of doctrine in the church and also the importance and and meaning of the application of doctrine in our individual lives. And that's a key point here is to understand how doctrine, the idea of doctrine, the importance of doctrine, how it's applicable to the way we live our Christian life. But before we can ever consistently apply sound doctrine, we must understand it. You can't really apply something you don't understand. At least you can't apply it in a sustainable way. And part of understanding what doctrine is includes understanding what it is not, which is Paul's direction today. He's going to tell us what it is, what good doctrine is not, and what bad doctrine and false doctrine and false teachers are doing and what it looks like. And from that, we will see the most impactful application of sound doctrine, which I believe is relationships. And I'll explain that near the end. So we're in verses three, start in verse three, and and a little bit into verse four. And Paul writes, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So Paul identifies three problems with false teachers. Okay, you got to understand, let's just contextualize this for a second. Paul, we're in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, okay? And early in 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the importance of some really key elements of a Christian life like love and a pure heart and a good conscience, a good conscience and sincere faith and, 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 and our, uh, the importance of, of adhering to the truth of God's word. And early in the, in the book or early in the letter, Paul warns Timothy about false teachers right off the bat. He's like, be careful. There's a lot of false teachers out there. They're going to deceive you. And, and he works through some of that. And then he clarifies what the true gospel is. And then he starts applying that gospel through doctrine. So he starts the letter with doctrine's important. False doctrine is everywhere. Careful. Watch out for it. It's perpetuated by false teachers. You need to be aware of these. Now, let me show you how to apply sound doctrine. Then Paul addresses the importance of men's roles in the church, the importance of Jesus's role in the church, and specifically a woman's role in the church. And he does not get into all the avenues of those individual roles, but he does address them. And he talks about the importance of men praying and the importance of men teaching and interceding as an expression of Christ who does that and women's role of submission and why that's important. And then he turns his attention. So all of this is directed towards the church functioning and operating according to the word of God, that the church would, the, 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 the specific um, logistics of what it means to be a healthy church. And then he gets to chapter 3 and he clarifies, well, if you're going to have a healthy church, you have to have godly leaders in the church. Because what I think we would all understand is, you know, the direction of a family is going to go by the father, right? The, the health of the father is going to dictate the health of the family. We would all agree with that. And, and you could look at statistics and look at the absence of a father and how that impacts a family. Right? Or the absence of a mother and how that impacts the family. And the importance of having a certain type of structure in the family. And that 
reality applies to the church as well. It's a top-down effect. From healthy leadership comes healthy people. And healthy leaders look a certain way. And Paul describes that in chapter 3. And he gives qualifications for elders. And then he gives qualifications for deacons. And then he reveals the beauty of the gospel through all of this. And then he starts addressing issues like things that Timothy is going to have to deal with. Um, some a little bit of false teaching that has crept into the church that, he's, that he addresses early in chapter 4. Tells Timothy how to be a good pastor. And then in chapter 5, he gives specific instructions for the church on how they're supposed to deal with each other in relationships. So relationships are huge. And he deals with brother, sister, you know, um, how, how to deal with older men, older women, younger men, younger women, all the different types of people in the church and how to relate to them and how the church should handle widows. And then specifically, at the end of chapter 5, he starts talking about elders again. And he, he gives clarity about how Timothy is supposed to... Uh, evaluate elders and certain standards for elders and not just that elders are holding the church accountable but that the church is holding elders accountable as well and that timothy has that responsibility and then last week at the beginning of chapter six we see paul express this idea of if you were a slave when you got saved stay a slave and suffer at your own expense and take the loss for the sake of others which was the concept perpetuated in the early chapter six. And now Paul's gonna address false teaching. So you can see how Paul's entire perspective or purpose really of this letter has been, I want this church in Ephesus that Timothy is leading to be a healthy, godly church with sound doctrine and good leaders and excellent function as he instructs the church. These are the way you do these specific logistics. This is the kind of doctrine you should have and these are the kind of men you should have leading the church. And then he warns us here at the end of chapter or at the end of the letter in chapter six, and he's like, but there's something you need to be aware of. There's something you need to be on the watch for. It is false doctrine that is brought to the church through false teachers. And so Paul has to look at these things and say, Timothy, you really have to be aware of this. And so I see as a pastor, I see these kinds of warnings all throughout the letters. It is constant. The warning against false teaching is all over the New Testament. All over. So you've got to look at the Bible if you read the New Testament and say to yourself, this must mean something. If this much effort is put into clarifying what sound doctrine is and what false doctrine is and how to be uh, aware of false doctrine and watch out for false doctrine and how to treat and deal with false teachers, if it's that if it's, if it's written about that much in the New Testament, it must be something that's valuable to the church. And what it tells us is that doctrine is valuable to the church. And the reason doctrine is valuable to the church is because what you believe is your doctrine. Whatever you believe, that's your doctrine. And what you believe determines how you live. So Paul identifies in verse 3, three problems with false teachers. One... He says they teach a different doctrine. In Galatians 1.9, Paul says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That means that man is cursed and condemned. Paul is not suggesting that when a preacher is wrong or makes a mistake or misspeaks that he's a false teacher. That's not what he's talking about dealing with or he's dealing with and talking about those who are intentionally and repetitively teaching a false doctrine or a manipulation of a truth, which would be a lie. And so Paul is talking about these teachers 
who are accursed, meaning they are condemned to eternal separation from God because these false teachers are not believers. So there's a difference between bad teaching and false teaching. There are preachers that I I would probably listen to their teaching and go, that's wrong teaching. And that preacher would probably look at my preaching and go, that's wrong preaching. So there can be differences and differences of opinion and doctrine and, and that exists. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one of them is false. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 5, though, when we're talking about these false teachers, that when it comes to them, we should, quote, avoid such people. Now, the second problem with false teachers that Paul identifies in verse 3 is that they do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers often do not reject Jesus's words or reject his teaching, but rather they contend with his words. They debate his words. They argue with his words. And through their manipulation of the text, they teach falsely the meaning of the words of scripture to arrive at a conclusion or at a point or at a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, is just another way of saying that they do not agree with the sound teaching of Scripture. So their, their, their teaching, false teaching, is not driven by rejection of sound doctrine. It is driven by a manipulation of sound doctrine. Because the reality is, the, the, the false doctrine is ultimately driven underneath the, the false teacher is, is Satan, right? The enemy and his army of demons that work to manipulate people. We see this in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that they are blind, their, their eyes are veiled from the truth by Satan, and the only way to unveil it is the power of the gospel. If God makes them aware to the knowledge of Christ. And if we know that Satan is working, we know that Satan is a manipulator, and we know because Jesus says in John 8 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, so he manipulates truth and lies, and we see this all over Scripture, and we see it in Genesis 3 right away, and what Satan will do, and I've said this many times from this pulpit, he's not going to come to the pulpit and say, hey guys, I'm Satan, I'm glad you're here today. I'd like to lie to you and tell you a bunch of things that aren't true. You know, you're not going to go, oh, I'll just see what he has to say. You would be like, we should leave. So, you know, Satan's not, I mean, and Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so he's going to present heresy and false teaching with mostly truth. It's going to be, you know, like 95% true because that makes what the lie that he slips in there palatable for us to receive. And so we, we hear all these true things coming out of the preacher's mouth and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And in there he slips some lies and he's patient, not patient in a holy way, but patient in a manipulative evil way. He's patient to wait and let those seeds of evil discourse and false doctrine plant in the church and take root and grow. And ultimately what the hope is, is that as those thorns grow among the healthy plants, which are true believers, that those thorns would kill the church and divide the people and ruin relationships. So Satan's not going to, and false teachers aren't going to go up and say, Jesus was wrong. They're not going to say, they're going to reject Christ. 
They're going to say, this is what Jesus says. They're going to take his words and they're going to twist them and manipulate him in such a clever way that a lot of the people that call themselves believers will fall for it. False converts will fall for it. And true believers will fall for it. And the reason we know that is because Paul is constantly telling the church what sound doctrine is and to avoid and watch out for and be careful of false doctrine and beware of false teachers. Now, the third problem with false teachers that Paul identifies is that they reject the teaching that accords with godliness. And again, that's not open rejection. That's that they reject it in their hearts and it's revealed in whatever we would call godliness or a lack of godliness. The biblical teaching, true, sound, good doctrine, biblical teaching will produce godly living. It will produce godly living. We see this as a promise from God that his word will sanctify his believers. We see it in 2 Timothy 3, Ephesians chapter 5, Isaiah 55. We know, and, and other texts as well, but we know that God's word is promised to sanctify, grow, and help the believer. Meaning the false teacher's teaching not only doesn't align with what scripture teaches about godly living, but that false teaching will, will not produce godly living. So 2 Peter 3.17 tells us not to be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own stability. Meaning bad doctrine will produce instability in your godliness. Therefore, you can identify false teachers and false teaching by the way that these false teachers live their lives. They will not be marked by holiness, but by sin. In their wake will be broken relationships, hurt believers, damaged churches, unhealthy living, ungodliness, and a plethora of sin. And Jesus tells us this. He warns the church about these false teachers. Specifically, we often use this text to talk about just any Christian, but Jesus specifically in Matthew 7, 15 through 16, he's talking specifically about false teachers. And he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. That doesn't mean they won't have fruit. Because Jesus goes on in that text to explain that there are good trees and bad trees. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And a good tree can't produce bad fruit. And so Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. Give it time. You'll see it. It's obvious. Watch their lives. Look at the way they operate. And time will reveal an intentional dissection of their lives will reveal. And this is why it will reveal that they're false. And this is why it will reveal that their doctrine's false too. And this is why it's important that when we go back to chapter five, that you see Paul telling Timothy, it's important that you are evaluating and discerning and looking at the leaders of the church, that the elders are being held accountable, that the congregation is aware of what's being said, that the leaders themselves are checking the leaders themselves. So that no one in the church is teaching something that's false. And so the leadership holds the leadership accountable. And the church holds the leadership accountable. And the leadership holds the church accountable. And by doing that, we all ensure that we are in the word of God. 
and aligned with sound doctrine. And doctrine is elemental to godliness. If you want, I mean, ultimately, don't, isn't that what we want? Like, as a church, we want to be godly. Like, if, if you've ever met a Christian, you say, hey, do you want to be godly? And they go, no. Then it's like, well, then what's the point, man? Like, no one would, no Christian would even say that. We'd be like, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Now, they might not live like they want to, but no one would say they don't. We all know that it's important to be godly, that our entire purpose, once we were justified, we entered this, this experience called sanctification, which is, we know, a process in which we become more and more and more like Jesus in character and in nature and in all of his communicable attributes, meaning those attributes of his that he shares with us. And so... We want to become more like Christ, and anyone who knows Jesus wants to be more like him. And anyone who says they don't want to be more like him, let me tell you, they don't know him. And so, we know that what we believe about God determines how we live, and how we live is a reflection of the godliness in our heart, right? Jesus says that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, what's inside of you will come out, it will show the depths of your holiness and your sanctification will be revealed in the things you do and say it's it's hard to pretend you can try to pretend for a while but it's hard to pretend and eventually who you really are is going to come to the surface in some way shape or form and who you are is rooted in what you believe so what you believe will show in the way that you live and we see this in titus 1 1 because titus 1 1 says that the knowledge of truth accords with godliness the knowledge of truth is your doctrine What you know to be true is the information you have in your brain. That is your doctrinal position, and it accords to godliness. They're inseparable. What you believe about God affects the way you live. Now, in verse 4, Paul says of the false teacher, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Now we see what is motivating these false teachers. They're full of themselves. They're eager to satisfy their own ego and glorify themselves. And this is not surprising since a false teacher is planted in the churches by the devil, who is himself conceited and understands nothing. Right? We talk about how smart Satan is, and we know he's smart. He's clever and manipulative, and, and, and he's a spiritual being that is massively powerful. More powerful than we are, and smarter than we are, and knows the words of the Bible better than we do. And we talk about that, and it almost, it almost feels like you're elevating this evil being to a place he doesn't deserve to be. Like you're giving him some sort of glory for being smart and clever and powerful. And it's like, no, Scripture describes him as evil. The encapsulation of evil is Satan. He is the... Fullness of evil expressed in one being. So much evil that his evil shoots out of him like a bomb or like an explosion and infects one third of the angels in heaven when he rebels against God and they're cast from the presence of God into this creation. And now he roams, deceiving God's people. Why? Because he wants the glory. And he's smart and clever and powerful But he does not have understanding. Not the way we do. 
Satan knows God's words, but we know God. And therefore, we understand God's word. So Satan knows the words, and he knows the truth. He doesn't believe it. It's not rooted in him, and it can't produce godliness. Instead, his rejection and suppression of truth, which has sealed his eternity, forces him to reject and rebel against the truth, which means he has to reject the church and rebel against God by harming his most precious possession, which is you. And the false teacher is just acting out what Satan is manipulating them to do, which is to exalt themselves. And little does the false teacher know they're being used by Satan to glorify Satan. And that false teacher himself is trying to glorify himself. Whether he's conscious of it or not, that's what he's doing. So Satan develops arrogance and conceit in the life of this false teacher to motivate them to teach errors to the church as a way to get the church to pull them away. I mean, think about... Um, I don't know, are you, maybe, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, <laughs> and every time I hear someone say that, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm like, well, here comes a conspiracy. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when I hear conspiracies, it's always like, well, that sounds true, right? Like, it, because the conspiracy is always framed in a way that, that is so different from what you've always heard. Right, Like the moon landing, for example. Everyone knows we landed on the moon. Until you start looking into the conspiracy theory that we didn't land on the moon. And you start looking at the evidence, you're like, hold on a second. Did we not land on the moon? And it's like, I'm feeling really convinced because the evidence looks overwhelming. And, and the reality is you haven't really heard about this before. And now for the first time, someone is putting into question something that you just automatically believed. And it makes you go, oh, well, maybe that's true. Because the thing that's happening in a conspiracy, the reason people are attracted to it, the same people who are attracted to conspiracy theories are the same people who are attracted to false doctrine. Which is why Paul says over and over again in scripture, stop with the conspiracy theories. He literally tells us, avoid conspiracies and avoid the people who are attracted to them. Because it's the same type of person that is drawn to false doctrine and heresy from false teachers. Why? What, what is the similarity between conspiracy theories and false doctrine? It's a veering from what is already assumed to be true, and it's taking the truth and it's manipulating the evidence in such a way that makes people go, I've never heard it that way before, and it's enticing. That makes it exciting. If I stood up here and said, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, none of you would be like, I've never heard this before. Why hasn't anyone told me that? You guys are here because you already know that. That's not news to you. You've heard that before. And so when I preach, oh, Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave, you're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, keep going because I want to go deeper. I already know that. That's milk. I want meat. Go deeper. Keep going. That doesn't blow my mind. And what do false teachers like to do? Step on stage and say things that capture your attention. They're a little veer from the truth. I saw, and they do it for shock value because I saw this pastor. I forgot his name. If I remembered his name, I've mentioned him before. I've mentioned this set before from the pulpit. So maybe you, could, maybe you guys remember me saying his name. And I wish I did remember his name because I would use it and tell you who he is because he's a false teacher. And I saw him stand in front of thousands of people at his church and declare 
that Jesus, as he tries to describe like money and Jesus and saying that, that, that people are, this is how he gets here. He was talking about people spending their money on strippers. And then he gets to the point where he says, Jesus stripped himself of life. And he says, and I quote, Jesus is the only stripper that I'll follow. And I was like, whoa. And then you read scripture that says that these false teachers will perpetuate lewdness of the gospel. And it's like, that's what he's talking about. And why does he say that? And then when he said that, everybody started cheering. Why did they cheer? Because he made a clever connection between the word stripper and the wickedness of, the, of sexual depravity. And he connected it to Jesus and it sounded cool. And so people loved it. It was clever and, 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 and a manipulation. And people loved it. And then the moment he said it, everyone started cheering. And the band started playing music. And he started singing songs about, I got money, I got money, I got money. I'm sitting here thinking, this, this is so evil. And people are standing there worshiping. And we call it church. And then, I, and then you, know, you, you see non-believers see this stuff on social media. And they're like, and that's why I don't follow Jesus. It's like, well, no kidding. And so it's that, it's that veering from the truth. It's that taking something that you haven't heard before and saying it in a way that is clever and manipulative, that kind of a little different from what you've heard. And it sounds like, oh, that's attractive. I haven't heard it said that way before. But it's, it's, it's separating you from the truth. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, like a, an offshoot of the truth. It contains truth. It's connected to truth. But it, it is itself not true. And it's often... Revealed in clever phraseology and, and the manipulation of words, which is exactly what Paul says here. They quarrel about words. A false teacher has an, un, Paul says, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrel about words, meaning they have no intention of understanding truth, but rather to argue over the nuances of words and phrases so to manipulate the teaching down to smaller pieces that makes the larger truth harder to identify. So once they've accomplished that, they can then take those smaller pieces and place them back together in their own fashion and arrive at what amounts to not truth. Do you see what I'm saying? They'll give you fragments of information. This is true. That's true. This is true. That's true. And those things will be true. And then you, you are under the assumption he just said all these true things. And then he takes those truths, puts them together, and creates this thing that, you, that he says – if these pieces are true, this thing I put together with these pieces must be true. And we go, that must be true. And it's not. It's a manipulation of our logic. We fall for it because we assume that logic tells us that since the smaller pieces of information made sense, when they are put together, then the larger image of what those smaller truths meant must make this larger truth actually true. It's a manipulation of logic to assume that correct knowledge of the smaller parts must automatically mean that when those parts are put together, it means that the final solution will be correct. I'll give you an example so this makes sense. God commanded his people to get circumcised. True? Absolutely. Later, God also commanded his people to believe in Jesus. Is that true? Absolutely. Therefore, since both of those are true, that means that, that all of God's people must believe in Jesus 
and get circumcised, right? Wrong. That is the exact heresy that the Judaizers were preaching to the church in Galatia, and that's the exact false gospel that Paul said deserves condemnation in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, which I just read for you. And yet each of the individual pieces are fact. God did command his people to get circumcised, and he also did command his people to believe in Jesus. The problem isn't that the facts are wrong. The problem is that the facts are constructed wrong. And that's what doctrine is, a construction of biblical truths into an idea that we call a doctrine. This is the same manipulation Satan used on Eve in the garden. The problem isn't that the facts are wrong. The problem is that the facts are constructed wrong and produces a false teaching that leads people away from God. Satan did it in the garden with Eve. God told them, don't eat. What does Satan respond? What does Satan do to Eve? He says, did God really tell you that? It's just a question. It's just a question. It's just a question. No harm, no foul. And I know I've talked about this book before. Um, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And in his book are, I don't know, 10 million questions with no statements of fact. Just question after question after question after question after question. And the question is like, same, same construct as Satan in the garden. Does God really say that you have to, that Jesus had to die for us to be saved? Is it possible that maybe Jesus, is, Jesus didn't have to actually die? Is it possible that... The atonement for our sins didn't require a sacrifice. Is it possible that, and he starts questioning what we know is true. And then if anyone challenges that book or those questions, he could just say, oh, they're just questions. I'm not, I'm not saying any. I'm not making a statement. It's like a politician. Avoiding the truth, skirting around the truth, and, and just, oh, I'm just asking a question. Don't get, your, don't get all upset about it. And it's manipulation. The question puts truth into question, which then causes us to go, well, may, maybe that is true. Maybe I should explore that. Instead of taking the truth that you know and saying, yeah, his substitutionary death was absolutely necessary. Scripture tells me that. And my doctrine says that. And that's what I believe. And your question is irrelevant and foolish and manipulative. Satan did the same thing in the garden. And, and I would say Rob Bell is a heretic. He's a false teacher with a massive church. Surprise, surprise. And when Satan's in the garden, he says to Eve, did God really tell you you can't eat of that? He's not saying, hey, hey, don't listen to God. He's just asking, just a question, just a question. Did God really say that? And Eve's like, well, yeah. And then Satan takes her answer and manipulates the truth and says, the reality is, and, and what does he say? He says a true thing. The reality is, God knows if you eat from this tree, you'll know the difference between good and evil. He says, you'll be wise. And Eve is excited about wisdom, about knowledge, about truth. And she wants information. She wants to know what she's not supposed to know. And Satan manipulates her into thinking, God just doesn't want you to know what you're supposed to know. And he says true words. Yeah, because when she eats of the, of the fruit from the tree, what happens? She suddenly becomes aware of good and evil. 
in a way she had not before. Satan didn't lie. He just manipulated her and deceived her. With what? Facts. That's what false teaching is. A series of facts organized in such a fashion that it can, when constructed, creates a manipulative deception that leads people away from Christ. And the only way to do that is to quarrel about and to quarrel about words, to take the little pieces, the little words, the little fractions of truth and, and, and manipulate them and quarrel about them because they have an unhealthy craving for the controversy because it draws attention away from the truth and puts the tension on them because the controvert, they become the center of the controversy. I mean, how many times have you heard about churches that are divided and one church is going to follow the, the pastor and the other, church, the other half of the church is going to follow this other guy who's saying something else? Somebody's lying. Somebody's deceiving. Somebody's manipulating. And underneath it is Satan. And what does that kind of manipulation produce? Well, end of verses 4 through verse 5 says, which produce... Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The false teacher is driven with conceit and without understanding of truth. And they are motivated by monetary gain, so to serve their own conceited interests. And we've talked about this before, too. What is ultimately our desire for money? Our desire for money is a desire for comfort. Because what does money get you? Things you want. And what do things get you? The comforts you want. And this is why Scripture repeats over and over and over again the warning to the rich. It is not inherently evil to have a lot of money. That is not what Scripture teaches. But Scripture does warn the rich repetitively. Why? Because in this very context, in verse 10, which we'll address next week, because this mention of monetary gain here at the end of verse 5 is going to lead Paul into a conversation about money. And he says in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Evils. And so... Money is something that we're warned about because God knows how quickly money corrupts. And we know money corrupts. And why does money corrupt? Money corrupts because money gets us things and things get us comfort. And comfort makes us feel safe. And God's like, that's the problem with money. I'm the only one who keeps you safe. And you are trusting in something other than me. And Paul addresses that and he says, I, I'm, I'm con." content if I have everything I need or have nothing I need because I have Christ. And that's what the gospel teaches. So there's this warning about money that's going to come next week's sermon. But here, Paul is revealing that one of the ways you can identify these false teachers is they have a desire to get money. I mean, look at every TV evangelist and famous preacher who's on television. I shouldn't say every one. Most of them, 99% of well-known, famous, on-television preachers are filthy rich. And again, it's not the wealth itself that is sin. It is that wealth corrupts. And you read James 5, and he's like, whoa to you, rich, which we'll address next week. But we know that underneath 
Because you kind of look at a false teacher and you say, well, what's your motivation? Do you just love to ruin people's lives? And they'll be like, I mean, they're not going to believe that. There has to be a legitimate reason for why they do what they do. And the most earthly, the most uh, accepted or understandable earthly reason to, to manipulate people is to gain. And what do they gain? Money. Why? Because they get a following and they take the truth about money and giving and they manipulate. And why do you think that all of these well-known heretics, because there are well-known faithful preachers too, the well-known and famous false teachers always talk about money. And what do they tell you over and over again? The lie. If you give, God will bless. If you give, give, God will bless, which ultimately is true. But they manipulate that truth and say, if you give, God will give back tenfold, hundredfold. God will multiply what you put in. You write that $100 check, God will turn it into a thousand. Woo! And then they lo- and then people will all stand up and cheer and they're excited because they are lost and they're listening to someone tell them you can have whatever you want if you just obey God's word and give your money to him. And it's like, to him? Hmm, where'd that private jet come from? You know what I'm saying? And so these false teachers are always going to be driven by money. And we see that as a truth because the most successful false preachers, the guys who have, and women, such as Joyce Meyer, who have manipulated the truth and turned people into, well, blinded them with their manipulation, are so good at it that they end up getting a bunch of money from people. They're so good at manipulation that they get people to give money to them. And then they become rich. And because they're rich, and they're rich because they have lots of people. So they're really good at manipulating, which draws a lot of attention. and gets a lot of people. And a lot of people means a lot of money. And a lot of money means that they become well-known and famous and rich. And so... We can look at the well-known, famous, and rich, and successful false teachers and identify that that is the ultimate end game for the false teacher. Meaning, underneath it all, even the, 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 the false teacher that's preaching at a church of 20 people, he might not be rich. But that's the underlying reality, and that is the end game for the false teacher is wealth. And we know that because we see it in the ones who are good at it. And this is always, this is always a sinful temptation for comfort in this life. And the false teachers prey on that. And, and, and it is a, that idea of comfort in anything other than Christ is an opposition to the gospel. It's an opposition to the gospel of discomfort that we preach. Last week, just talked about, Paul just said to the slaves, if you're a slave, when you got saved, stay a slave and be faithful and submissive to your master. That's not a gospel of comfort. That's a gospel of sacrifice and discomfort and slavery and hardship and pain and suffering. That's the gospel that we believe in. 
Now, that doesn't mean we should all just be running headfirst into any suffering. Hey, I just want to suffer. So I'm like, Jesus, no, the point isn't to suffer. The point is to sacrifice. And sacrifice will produce hard things in life. And those hard things are meant to cause you to depend on God. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. Life is uncomfortable and so is sanctification. So that in your discomfort, that God appoints for your life. Yes, there your discomforts come from him as opportunities to sacrifice so that you can go through suffering. So that you could know what it means to be like Christ. Paul says, so that I may know the sufferings of Christ. Which can only be realized when we face painful discomforts. So the conclusion of these false doctrines is that they don't produce in you the Christ-likeness of sacrificing for the sake of others. But rather, these false doctrines promote self and comfort. And and, and it comes through monetary gain. Or at least that's what is motivating the false teachers. And what does this false doctrine promote? Well, he tells us in verse uh, 4... Verse 4, they produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And what do you notice about these words? All of them require at least two people. Which means all of them are involved in relational conflict. All of these words are causes or part of conflict between people. And what do we know about the enemy? He wants division because it opposes the unity of the gospel. God's people united together as one in Christ, encouraging each other, lifting each other up, supporting each other, holding each other accountable, teaching one another, loving each other, serving each other, strengthening each other, eating meals together, hanging out together, watching football together, raking leaves together, working on the church together. Projects together, cleaning the church together, giving together, serving together, studying together, listening right now together, singing together. Everything is together. We were made for each other. We were made for unity because that is what God is. He is unity. He is three persons in one. A unity that is genuinely beyond our fathomability. That we get to, in the way in which God's unity is is attainable or tangible or understandable for us is that we are told in scripture that we get to unite to each other. So we get to understand the expression of God's unity within himself in the church with each other. That we are all distinct from one another. Different people with different personalities and different perspectives and different thoughts and different brains and different bodies and everything's different. Every single individual is a, is a unique and distinct person and yet scripture reminds us over and over and over again. Hold on. How many times does scripture tell you how different you are from everyone else? How many verses you got on that? To be quite honest, I, I, I bet you could probably find one that says something about that. I, I normally would have a verse off the top of my head. I cannot think of a verse. Doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just telling you right now, I cannot think of a verse that exalts how different you are from everyone else. And in, in scriptures that identify the differences, 
have a greater point, which is within your differences, there is oneness and unity in Christ. So what does scripture talk about all the time? That we are one. That, that I have a bond with an, an African brother on a different continent whom I've never met. Different skin color, different culture, different everything. Different language, different perspective on the world, different comforts, different wealth, different scenarios, different situations, different family structure, different, different, everything's different. It's as different as you can get. Other side of the world, other side of reality to me. And I have a deeper bond with that brother in Christ than I do with my biological siblings. However, my biological siblings are believers. So also, also a united bond with them. But the point is that biology is secondary to spirituality, to our unity in Christ. And so what Satan wants to do is divide that. Because when we operate in unity, we operate as one, not just together, but we operate as one, according to Ephesians 4, in Christ, in one God, in one spirit, in one faith. And God, if we're operating as one and we're operating in unity with God, which is what we're doing when we operate as one and in unity together, well, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Satan can't bear it. So it is no surprise that false doctrine produces the very things that ruin the church. And, that, and what this teaches us is that if you, if you are in relational conflict, that means you have a doctrinal problem. Relational conflict is a doctrinal problem because behavior comes from what you believe and what you do is a product of your doctrine. You will act according to your doctrinal position and you might even have doctrinal positions that you don't even know are doctrinal positions. An atheist has a doctrinal position. God doesn't exist. Bad doctrine. Still doctrine. And they live their life as if God doesn't exist. Their doctrine dictates their life. Your behavior is a product of what you believe, and if, you, if your behavior is faulty and your relationships are in conflict, then there is a doctrinal error somewhere leading to ungodliness in relationships. And these false teachers who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth are trying to manipulate people out of unity and into division so that they can destroy the church. They don't think they're destroying the church. They are trying to gain. It looks like they're trying to build the church. And one of the best, Satan's so clever, he's like, I know the best way to destroy the church. Make it bigger. Build it. More people. More money means more corruption. More conflict. And Paul tells us very clearly that will be envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. What does envy require? Someone's jealous of someone else. That's two people. Every week there's a bug on my paper. Okay. What does dissension require? It's a division of, of, of relationship. Dissension is to, dissent, to, to divide from one another. What does slander require? Someone saying something evil about someone else. What does evil suspicions require? Someone suspecting something evil of someone else. It is the opposite of what the gospel produces, which is love always assumes good in other believers. Whereas false teachers will produce evil suspicions, creating in people doubt and, and, and that doubt creates that dissension and division in relationships. And what else? Constant friction. Well, friction, friction requires two objects. Okay? If I wave my hand in the air really fast, there's no friction. 
If I, what do I need to create friction? I need two hands. Put them together, rub them together, and my hands are getting warm already because of friction. So what do false teachers perpetuate? This, all day long, constant, taking the church and rubbing people together. And it gets hot and uncomfortable and unbearable. And what do people do when they get that way? They get irritable and frustrated and they fight each other. And like, get off my back, man! And then all of a sudden, boom, people are exploding and relationships are falling apart. What is Satan after? He's after unity through division, which comes by breaking up all of your individual relationships. Rarely does Satan walk into church and go, I'm going to teach a different doctrine. Half of you are going to think this way and half of you are going to think this way. And I'm going to divide the church right down the middle. Rarely is division in the church so prominent. If that's happening, it's typically been there for a while. It's finally kind of revealing itself. Instead, what does Satan do? He manipulates from within and in small ways and brings in division in individual relationships. I'm going to pick at you. I'm going to pick at you. I'm going to put little fractions in this relationship and little fractions in that relationship. And if I can get this person to stop thinking about God and not be in the word and manipulate their doctrine just a little bit, I can get them a little off. And then they'll, when this person irritates them again, they are not prepared spiritually with their poor doctrine to respond according to the gospel. And it's going to create a friction and they're going to fight and argue. And I look at them and I go, doctrine is the problem. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the application of the gospel. They don't understand what God's word commands us to do. And they're living sinfully. And it produces problems in relationships. So that's ultimately what, is, what does all of this mean to us? Relationships. Relationships are not just a part of life. They are essential to life. Absolutely essential to life. In 1915, institutionalized babies who didn't have parents and were put... And government took them and put them in a, you know, giant institutions with hundreds and hundreds of cribs and a bunch of babies with a bunch of nurses that work with these babies. And what did the nurses do? They fed the babies. They gave the babies water and food and shelter and clothes. These babies had everything they needed. They were put in their cribs. They were fed. But they were left alone. And you know what they did? They died at alarming rates. They had everything they needed, food, water, shelter, clothes, and yet they died. Until one woman decided that as she was feeding, and she didn't know why, I mean, she didn't understand the connection until later, she would feed a baby and then decided that as she went to go take care of other babies or do other chores, she would just hold that baby on her hip and carry it around like a mother does, right? And all of a sudden, They started practicing that, and the babies stopped dying. And what they discovered later is that these babies were dying of what is called marasmus, which is a severe malnutrition characterized by energy deficiency. Let me put that in the layman terms for you. They died due to a lack of love. So love is expressed in touch, and these babies were not touched. How else is a baby supposed to know love but but to be touched? I mean, you can read up on studies the importance, the, the benefit of a newborn baby fresh into the world being du- placed directly on its mother skin to skin. And the value of that is astronomical. You'd think, what's the difference if there was a piece of clothing between it? I don't understand it either, but apparently it's a massive deal. Probably because of this reality that touch is the expression of love. There's other ways to express love. 
But what that reveals is that we were created for love. We were created to be loved by each other. We were created for one another. We were created for relationships because relationships provide ultimately one great thing, which is love. Any relationship that is not promoting love in your life is a waste of your time. So either turn that relationship into love or get it out of your life. Because if it's not serving the purpose of love in your life, then it is not serving any purpose but dysfunction. So either sanctify it or cut it off. And if that other person is a believer, sanctify it. I'd even argue if that person's an unbeliever, sanctify it. You know what? Don't cut any of them off. Sanctify them all. <laughs> I do believe there are times when you need to put up boundaries and, and, and end certain relationships. That's why I give that as a, little, a little space. But ultimately, we should be turning every relationship into love because that's what we were made for. We die without love. Love is essential to life as anything else. And love is expressed onto us through others, meaning we were created for each other, for relationships, so we could experience love. And we, when we do that, we des- we, what we experience then from that love is what? Unity. A united love that comes from Jesus. And Christ reigns in that relationship. And the two people become more like Christ. And they relate to each other more like the son relates to the father. And we start to grow in the unity of Christ and unity with each other. And our relationships get better. And there is no longer envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. There is love and faith and hope and encouragement and satisfaction. And they strengthen each other. And we grow together. And yeah, there'll be conflict, of course. But it doesn't need to be constant. It doesn't need to be full of dissension and slander and envy and other evil things. If doctrine is poor, so also love will be poor. Relationships will decay, as Paul just told us. And we will spiritually decay and physically decay. So if you care at all about your spiritual well-being, then you must also care about relationships. And the only way to ensure that you maintain healthy relationships is if you develop healthy doctrine. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and we trust completely that our doctrine will be formed and shaped by you. It will always be imperfect in some sense because we are imperfect beings. But what we love is that you are always taking imperfection and sanctifying it and changing it and growing it. So we don't want to focus on the fact that we don't know everything. We want to focus on the things that we do know. We want to focus on the good doctrine you've taught us to develop in areas of of doctrine that we don't understand and strengthen the areas we do and grow more foundationally firm in who we are in Christ and what we know about God, what we know about Christ what we know about the spirit, what we know about ourselves, what we know about the word, what we know about the world, what we know about Satan, what we know about believers and we know about unbelievers. We wanna know everything so that we can operate in a way where we can love people, build healthy relationships from sound doctrine, unite together as a growing body of Christ and be sanctified for your glory in the final day. And all this is predicated on love. So we do want to say, God, we want to love each other well and we want to love you well. But to love well, we need to know correctly what love is and how it behaves and what it looks like. So 
Give us sound doctrine. Teach us truth. Sanctify our minds so that we could live our lives in godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.